0: course we are dead we are all dead we were supposed to make the world a better place perhaps
1: well, i'm as mad as hell and i'm
0: not
2: gonna take this anymore i know kung fu
3: you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain
2: i'm as mad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore
3: this whole thing is insane
2: this whole thing is insane
4: 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power.
2: This is now the United States of Zombie Land. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction.
4: Everybody is stuck with
2: the things that they're not proud of.
4: More power. Welcome to the desert the real, more power.
2: There can be
1: only
0: one. Are you a God-fearing man, Samit? With such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid
3: of is me.
0: Happy heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AV Live, audio version for thee in this eternal now. My friend and friend to the Gnostics, Eric G. Wilson, returned to the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, How to Be Weird, an off-kilter guide to living a one-of-a-kind life. What is being weird exactly? How can that wild eccentricity move us into an existence of wonder, artistry, and freedom? We learn from past and remarkable figures that broke through the monotony of machine life and archon hypnotizing, and embraced their inner trickster and created a better world. Beyond Eric sharing the wisdom and exercises from his work, we covered William Blake, Herman Melville, David Lynch, and other Gnostics of modernity. This show is for everyone, and the most important one this year, if you want to access your inner creative writer or creator. As I say in the interview, a couple of AB Lives next week including an astrotheological understanding of God and the power of archons over astrology. And then we focus on hermetic healing. So get ready for more Hermes and how he can change your life. Thank you to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria, who make all this content happen. I can't do it without you. You are amazing in your backing, company, and feedback. Make this podcast happen in the Black Iron Prison. Don't forget my voiceover services for any podcast, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatevs. I'll bring you stellar results with down to home professionalism. And don't forget, I do have an Amazon wish list and a fantastic merch store. Other than that, let us to our latest AV Live. But first, How about a little wisdom from the legend of Bagger Vance, which ties in perfectly with Eric's elegant and soul-stirring ideas.
4: Fix your eyes on Bobby Jones. He's a piece of work here right now. In the band room.
0: Knock it out there, Bobby.
4: <laughs> Look at his practice swing. Almost like it's searching for something. Then he finds it. Watch how he settles himself right into the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Feel that focus. And he got a lot of shots he could choose from. Duffs and tops and skulls. There's only one shot that's in perfect harmony with the field. One shot that's his. Authentic shot. And that shot is going to choose him. There's a perfect shot out there trying to find each and every one of us. All we got to do is get ourselves out of its way. Let it choose us. look at him. He in the field. You can't see that flag as some dragon you got to slay. You have to look with soft eyes. See the place where the tides and and the seasons and the turning of the earth all come together. Where everything that is becomes one. You got to seek that place with your soul, (laughs) Juno. Seek it with your hands. Don't think about it. Feel it. Your hands is wiser than your head ever gonna be. I can't take you there, Juno. Just hopes I can help you find a way. just you that ball that flag and all you are seek it with your hands don't think about it feel it looking focus, at it, it. Gina, feel it it's just you one shot don't see it. it's the home of your authentic swing that flag and all that you are.
0: Welcome everybody to AB Live. And yes, that was probably a little weird for us. <laughs> I should have maybe warned our guest about it, but uh yes, this is a world where men have nipples and uh yeah, a lot of high weirdness. My name is Miguel Connor. I am your pompous of gnosis, and very excited for the show as it definitely is an analog to so many of the themes of this podcast so we are very happy to be here happy friday happy freya day to all of you and with us as always it's great to have my friend and a scholar and writer who i greatly admire and that is eric g wilson eric thank you very much for coming back
1: miguel as always it is my total pleasure good to see you again
0: Good to see you. And with us, we also have uh my favorite American since Jesus Christ, and that is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing?
3: Oh, I'm okay. I brought a guest too today. Here he is. Uh, oh, he's... Yeah, he's... <laughs> Tardigrade. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Those creatures that can live anywhere.
3: Isn't that weird. he's weird. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> weird. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, that's what we're going to get into very much. Uh, Mm -hmm. We will be discussing Eric's new book, How to Be Weird, an off-kilter guide to living a one-of-a-kind life and yeah it was a great book uh, great exercises some are short some are long and they definitely go into the ethos of the esoterica and they and it's and i laughed a lot at this book so um eric why what made you decide to write how to be weird
1: i i, I think it actually grows out of my relationship with my daughter i mentioned that a little bit in the introduction uh, when she was very little, two, three, four years old, I was going through somewhat of a dark time, um, mental health wise. And my therapist said, you know, creating, uh, connecting with your daughter to probably make you feel better. But for a guy like you, you're not going to be a good traditional father. You can't really convey values to her. You can't really teach her how to be a respectable citizen. But you're kind of funny in a, in a really disturbing way. <laughs> so just what, what, whatever you can do to make her laugh, no matter how bizarre, that's what you should do. So we started making up these really crazy games. Um, and that just kind of lived on in our lives to where she and I p- periodically would just be sitting together in the car and get kind of that strange vibe. And I would say, Do you feel weird? She's like, Do you feel weird? <laughs> hey, I feel a little weird. I feel a little weird. So that's that's flippant and and whimsical, but given my spiritual interest, I started realizing that. Weirdness is ultimately a kind of spiritual category, and and in fact, it's a Gnostic category, um, because I, not necessarily theologically, but psychologically, I'm sure we'll get into that. But you know, the, the demiurge, um, metaphysically or psychologically, wants us to think life is okay and that everything is smooth and life is predictable and that our habits are useful. Uh, but sometimes we get. To mention the matrix, we feel that splinter in the mind um, that makes us think, well, maybe things aren't all right. Maybe things aren't real. What is going on here? And that feeling can be disturbing and uncanny and insecure and disorienting. uh, But that can also open us up um, to the kind of richness and sublimity and infinity of spiritual experience
0: very much indeed in fact i i wrote down some quotes here's mm-hmm. one uh, of course i went for the more gnostic quotes but this is in one of your exercises we are the butts of a cosmic joke don't be a bad sport get in the laughter so basically yeah we're this is the Demiurge's world we're in this cosmic prison so just have a good time right
1: well, yeah, I mean, the 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 problem I faced in my life and, and the, the people I dislike the most are those that take themselves too seriously. And, and that's another part of this book is, is just we can we need to be more self-effacing, um, more ironic towards ourselves, more willingness to laugh, willing to laugh at ourselves. And again, that's another way. Anything you can do to kind of like knock the ego aside a little bit, you know, poke it, uh, jeer it. Uh, however, that happens. It's always a good thing, I believe. And, and and this book is partially written in that spirit too, and so I hope there is a kind of quirky, sarcastic humor from time to time in the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you to- you write how uh, your daughter told your fiancé, you know, life. Why, why do you guys play these weird games? And she's like, "Well, life is boring," and she is right. I mean, <laughs> boredom is a is a is a mind killer, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The dredge, it reminds me of this quote from Caitlin Johnstone, who said. Uh, the opposite of life isn't death, it's habit. And you know, we all get into that, right? I mean, we all we have good entrepreneurial habits and mm-hmm. get up and write our stuff, you know, write your book at 6 a.m. But that can turn us into Gurdjieff machines, don't you think?
1: <laughs> well, William James, one of my favorite philosophers, says that, that genius is nothing more than perceiving the world in an unhabitual way. And I think connected to that is Emily Dickinson's poem about poetry, where she says, I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose. Just just opening moments in our daytime when when we feel like we're pushed from the actual to the potential, when we're kind of veering from the linear uh, to maybe the, 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 the spiral. I think the more we can do that, the more we can surprise ourselves, the better. And I think that's really the purpose of almost all these exercises in some ways is let's surprise ourselves with ourselves and 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 see see what happens next. Um, because you're right. mean boredom, well, my mom used to say this on a Saturday, like, well, mom, I I'm I'm bored. She would say, Well, boredom's a failure of the imagination. Pretty harsh thing to. I mean, she was a school teacher. It's kind of a pretty harsh thing to say. It's like, no, that's a lot of pressure. But, but, but there's something true, true about that. So, I mean, the book's about weirdness, but also it's about creativity. It's, it's about imagination. Um, it is about spiritual experience. Um, I write in my second exercise about this Zen concept known as Yugen, um, which is this term for sort of wandering out into this landscape that is new to you with no thought of return. And in other words, you're just walking to walk. You're not going anywhere. And I didn't actually put this in the book, but this is an interesting story. I was, I was in college and I was in the um, coffee shop and I was reading this famous book on the history of religion by Houston Smith. I think it's, yeah, everybody knows that book, right? The history, I think it's like the history of the world of religion or world of religion. Nice. I, was, I was reading the chapter on Buddhism and this dude just appeared out of nowhere and he was like really thin. He had on a fedora and he had on like a, a kind of a zoot suit and he was wearing spats of all things. And this is in Boone, North Carolina. This is like podunk realm. Like, <laughs> What the, who the hell are you? It's like, he just appeared and he said, um, have you ever heard the story about the um, student who took a class on Zen Buddhism? Like, well, what's that story? He said, well, the student turned in an essay of 10 blank pages because he thought his professor would see that he knew the essence of Buddhism, which is all form is emptiness. Well, the professor gave him a, an F and the student said, why did you do that? I know the essence of Zen. And the professor said, if you're a true Zen Buddhist, you won't care that you got an F, um, which is a great story. Um, but but I did. I got to know this guy a little bit. His name was Jed. He was a very strange dude. And he taught me that he'd been reading a lot of Alan Watts. And, and you know Alan Watts is big on the idea that the best gurus are tricksters. They're not out to sort of reinforce a dogma um, to teach you a discipline like the seven steps to enlightenment. Um, they're just doing anything they can to throw you off, basically (laughs) to kind of shock you out of your, of your ego and your habits. So that, that experience with Jed, um, I don't know where the hell he is now, is, is really kind of integral to the book. It was a real, you know, as a freshman in college, it was a real sort of mind bender. So this book is written in that sort of tricksterish spirit. Um, the idea that the best teachers don't reinforce what we already know, but they push us into a kind of intellectual and emotional chaos.
0: Yeah, it makes sense, and yeah, as, uh, I'm sure all three of us Gen Xers know that a big part of our growing up was battling boredom. Hey, let's get stoned, watch a movie, uh, and we're just sort of sitting around, you know, slackers. Yeah, it was this fight, and yeah, of course, the society is built for that. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a good fight. And yeah, there's one part, Eric, where you talk about. Falling asleep on your laptop to Donnie Darko. I was like, (laughs) did you not have the greatest mystical experience (laughs) in this? I mean, your subconscious absorbing this stuff.
1: (laughs) Well, so uh, in my introduction, I do talk about various weird experiences um, like like deja vu, uh, like getting lost and returning to the same place over and over again. But one of them is, is the hypnagogic experience. And we've all had this experience where we're watching a movie and we fall asleep and we start dreaming. But the movie kind of shows up in our dream. And at those moments, we feel like, whoa, <laughs> you know, what's outside of my head is now inside of my head. And what was inside <laughs> of my head is now outside of my head. And these are wonderful, uncanny experiences that people like Edgar Allan Poe and Samuel Taylor Coleridge just just love. But Donnie Darko goes deep for me. I, we may have talked about that at some point, Miguel. It's such mm. a great Gnostic film. In fact, I have a T-shirt with the, with the head of the Donnie Darko rabbit on it um and I, you know walk around town and no one knows what the hell it is but occasionally someone will say dude donnie dark dude. i'm like i found my person you know it's like it's like <laughs> it's a test if you know what this <laughs> shirt means i'll be your friend
0: <laughs> your secret valentinian club or lodge
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes yes
0: oh it's such an amazing movie well i guess uh, as we're going on, people are asking, well, what is weird? Again, it's uh, one of those terms we all use it. We mm-hmm. all throw it around in our own context. Mm-hmm. But uh, how would you define weird, Eric?
1: Yeah, I um I would define it as kind of a it, – it, it can move one or two directions. A weird experience occurs when what we think we know really well, the familiar, suddenly becomes strange. Mm-hmm. Um, like to give a, a kind of banal example, if you're in, say, a, a wax museum <laughs> – and 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 you're like looking at these celebrities in wax, and suddenly one seems to move or blink at you, like or a doll seems to blink at you, just like whoa, um, that's not supposed to happen. So the the defamiliarization of the familiar can be one form of weird, but also it can be the other other direction as well. When something really whacked out, um, like a crazy film, like say Todd Browning's Freaks, say, or 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 are you find yourself in a strange city at nighttime? Those moments that feel totally otre. Suddenly come feel familiar. It's like something in your heart resonates with that event that seems so unsettling to you just seconds before. So I guess I would say that, that weird is not something just like totally whacked out. Um, it's something that is is close to us, but we don't quite know it yet. So, so that's that's why I feel like it's, it's the everyday becoming not the everyday or the not everyday becoming the everyday. And, and my exercises in this regard aren't crazy. I mean, they, they really are little nudges and pokes and, and invitations to, to see things a different way. For instance, I have an exercise, um, Salvador Dali, the great surrealistic painter. And I see that um, Vance has a Dali-esque um, <laughs> block behind him, which I'm gratified to see. He, he would um, fall asleep with uh, um, pennies in his hand or ball bearings in his hand. And when just as he would fall asleep, the hand would open, relax, and the pennies would fall on the floor. And he would immediately write down the first thought in his mind or immediately paint the first image in his head. So it's sort of a hypnagogic exercise where what's happening in your sleep world, you can spontaneously express in your waking world. And who knows what's going to come out? You you just don't know. it. It may be ridiculous and you may never think about it again, but it may be an idea or an image or a word that you can you can build something on.
0: Oh yes, indeed. There's so many insights in that, and yeah, like I tell people, if you want to be weird, you don't have to go full. You don't have to, you know, show up to work dressed as Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley. <laughs> you know, you can do simple things like uh, take a different route to work. When you walk mm-hmm. to your car, just hop like a bunny for a few <laughs> seconds. Wear different <laughs> lipstick. These are things yeah. that can sort of break you out of normative reality, and like you said, trick your ego to sort of look mm-hmm. at different ways of the world do you get to do that as a professor i mean i know we talked in our uh as fellow you know bipolars Mm -hmm. when we're up (laughs) we do weird things anyway and people look at us but do you get to sort of play with this as a professor or
1: oh oh, yeah um and and the i i I guess in some ways the older i get the less likely i am to do something like really data-esque in class i mean i used to jump up on the desk Oh. For instance, um, really just to kind of shock students into like, what what would you do if I did this? Or I, I would throw chalk across the room. And I, back in the old days, I'd throw chalk at the student sleeping. Can't do that anymore. I'd probably lose my job. Um, <laughs> but there were other times when I would I would I would read an Emily Dickinson poem. I say, you know what it feels like to read an Emily Dickinson poem? Well, she says a poem is good if you know if you like the top of your head's been blown off. So I'd read the poem and I would like go boom. And one time I did it so hard. I gave myself a concussion. So you know, it's like, Whoa, oh, no, for real. This is like 15 years ago. But the answer is yes. I feel like, I feel like to be a good teacher, you have to be, again, that kind of trickster. You you have to be playful or you should be playful and really j- just try to shake your students up however you can. And that's really what, what I, what I love most about teaching. And a lot of these exercises came out of the classroom. I teach creative writing, creative writing workshops and for years, I've sort of tried ways to get students to activate their imagination in class and especially the, the exercises exercises having to do with language. Come right out of those classes like make up your own curse word or um, make up a sentence with the language you've made up entirely. Uh, think of a book title that doesn't exist and write a review of it. I mean, th- those sorts of things are, are just ways to activate the, the literary imagination.
0: Yes, indeed. And I wanted to ask you sort of a side question too. Mm -hmm. kind of I had, obviously, in our last talk, we talked about these are weird times Mm -hmm. to say the the, the least. It seems the trickster spirit has just taken over the United States. Uh, But and people think, well, oh my God, these are such hard times. And
3: mm-hmm.
0: they are hard times. But in your experience, especially as this show becomes more dedicated to Hermes, the trickster, because mm-hmm. as many Jungians say, this is the age of Hermes, the god of transitions, mm-hmm. of doorways, of insanity, but innovation in the rom- during the Romantic period, did any of the poets uh a invoke hermes b talk about wisdom of surviving times because people again today mm-hmm. are like, "Oh, this is the worst time It's like no during the Romantic period there were napoleonic wars mm-hmm. revolutionary where there was smallpox that was killing millions of people in the United States and Europe there were hard times. It's the old Gandalf and Frodo. The, nobody wants to be in these times, but you right. do the best. But any wisdom from the Romantics on how to do, survive these change, mm. changing times?
1: Yes. And, and 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 you're right to say that I, I would say from you know, the time the French Revolution broke out uh, until 1815, the Battle of Waterloo, uh, I mean, England was basically a police state. Um, there was mm. such a fear of The French attacking, especially when Napoleon took over and there was such a fear of spies within England that Hoppius Corpus was suspended for for years. So if you were just in a pub whispering with someone about French insurrection, you could be. Thrown in the tower, or or, or worse, so William scary, Blake
0: spent time in jail for sedition too.
1: <laughs> well, for a brief time, that's right. He was just out sailing with some friends on on the river, and and the the authorities thought he was a spy. So yeah, I mean he he it was a very scary time. And I would say when, when you say romanticism, I'm thinking of the so-called Big Six romantic poets: you know, Blake, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Keats, Shelley. Right. And, and the, I would say there are kind of three different responses among these, um, depending on which poet. And I'll be brief about this. But you know someone like Blake was very much aware that the Orthodox religion of his time, Anglican Christianity and the monarchy were in total cahoots with one another. Um, basically, the church's job was to tell the, the citizens who were unjustly treated that this is what God wants for you that this is part of God's plan. So religion in Blake's time was ultimately a reinforcement of the status quo. And Blake knew that Anglican religion was just one myth among among many myths, And because all religions are myths created by poets. So his his strategy was to create counter-myths, which is a classic Gnostic um, strategy, as as you know, like rewriting the book of Genesis. How many Gnostic texts do that? So his idea was, let's imagine another world that will... uh, allow us to question the status quo, but also invite us each to create in our own way. Um, someone like Wordsworth was, was much more grounded in, in, in the material world. His idea was that let's go to the natural world. And, and the natural world is a place of spontaneity, um, a place of childlikeness, a place of freedom. And if we can try to mesh our imaginations with the natural world, that's a way to you know, kind of push against the, the demiurge. But Lord Byron had the, the, the more hermetic way. He was more in the Hermes camp. Um, he wrote this great poem, a 24 book poem called Don Juan. We would say Don Juan, but we know from his rhyme scheme that he wanted us to anglicize it, Don Juan. And this is one of the first works that kind of breaks the fourth wall. Where, where Byron will be writing uh, about his hero, Don Juan, and suddenly like break out and say, whoa, I'm really hungover today. I can barely write this sentence. So just <laughs> so like he's constantly sort of mocking himself while writing. And to me, this becomes a, a model of sort of living ironically. Um, but not irony is uh, sar- sar- sarcasm, but irony is a kind of generous skepticism, a, a willingness to question what you're doing at any given time, not to shut it down, but just to open up possibly different ways of doing what you're doing, but also it becomes a way to question the status quo, knowing that any worldview is a construct, Um, one construct among many other constructs. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're all the same. Some are better than others. (laughs) The ones that are better than others foster more connection um, and kindness and generosity. The worst ones foster power and and hierarchy. So Byron was very on to that. And and this, this irony he practiced was a way of basically saying, Ultimately, any way we try to describe the world is inadequate to the superabundance and the mystery of the world. Um, so we shouldn't take any worldview that seriously, but we should try to cultivate worldviews that are more open to the strangeness and the mystery of the universe. That's more Herm- that's more the Hermes spirit, I think.
0: Oh, yeah. <clears throat> the idea of imagination, contemplation mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah. And uh, Don Juan, as you call it. Yeah. Byron, I think, wrote it in of all places, Sintra, Portugal, or he had a house there. I've been to or walked by his house there. So
1: oh, he was a great world traveler. I mean, mm-hmm. and he, he well, not world travel, he traveled all around Europe. And he spent he did spend time in Portugal, Lisbon. Mm-hmm. Spent, of course, he died in Greece. Um, he tried to raise money for a Greek army to fight against um Turkey and you know died of dysentery probably in the trenches. But Byron um was a fa- fascinating man. He was he's the most Gnostic in some ways of the poets, not idea-wise, but in that he was a he was you know, a total hedonist. I mean, he any con- any moral convention <laughs> he threw <laughs> through to the winds. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> An
0: old car uh, that, that's
1: right. I mean, you can go one <laughs> of two ways as a Gnostic, right? You can sort right, of hide right. the flesh or you can like totally give in to the flesh
0: yeah exactly exactly well yeah that's really that's definitely uh good advice as i tell people and i learned this from Jungian therapy and other Mm -hmm. things if uh if you if your worldview is bad you can change it and people, that's impossible yes your beliefs how you were raised they're all constructs you can find Mm -hmm. a completely different your inner goodness or your consciousness is Mm -hmm. not going to change so just find a new worldview destroy your worldview and move on
1: we deserve the worldview we create. I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I think if we're I mean, you and I know this, Miguel, I mean, in some ways, if you're if you're really, really depressed, you're just living in a inadequate worldview. <laughs> you, you can you can come up with a different worldview. I feel like the, the practice of mindfulness, which isn't necessarily a union practice, but the practice of mindfulness really opened me to this. The, the idea that we we do create our realities. And mm-hmm. if you're not feeling great, well, try to create a different
3: reality. With the reality tunnels, right? Of Robert Anton
1: Wilson. Absolutely. Same, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Get
3: to a dead end.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, we were you were talking about there's one exercise about earworms and I'm like, ah, damn it. Eric has the same earworm I have, which is Toto's Africa. <laughs> that song comes into my head at least twice. So Somebody will say I bless and I'll go the rains down in Africa. Oh, <laughs> yeah.
1: I know. I know. We'll see that. I, I love that you brought that exercise. I mean, we all have earworms. And um, yeah, but just a quick aside. I don't know how long it's been since you've watched that video for Toto's Africa from the 80s. But this was a time before rock stars needed to worry about how they looked. I mean, all those guys are just like like, like 45-year-old dudes. and I mean, they just don't care how they look <laughs> the at all. The mustache
0: and the mustache. So, yeah. no, it's
1: amazing. Wearing members-only jackets, probably. But, but, So we all have the earworms, and we're probably irritated at the earworms. But what would happen if you wrote out the earworm, the lyrics to the earworm out of Africa, by hand, and say your favorite poet's Lord Byron. And then you write Lord Byron at the bottom. And just imagine, what if Lord Byron had written that song? And suddenly the song changes a little bit, and suddenly Lord Byron changes a little bit. It's it's a minor moment, but again, it's just another way to take what we just assume is an everyday part of life and make it just a little a little wonky for a minute. And and it's fun. Ultimately, the weirdness that I describe in this book should be fun in 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 this way. Of a well, when I was a little kid, I watched um, the Mickey Mouse show, and I remember Thursday I think was Surprise Day. And the Mouseketeers would sing a song. I'm not going to sing it. They would go like surprise day, surprise day. Anything can happen. And it usually does, which I just love like anything can happen. And it usually does. And that's the spirit of the book. Like what the hell is going to happen next? Um, Anything might happen. And let's just let's just see what happens instead of trying so hard to predict what's going to happen or assume so much that we already know what's going to happen. And then we'll just be refreshed, I hope. And we'll feel like the universe is re-enchanted
2: just a little bit.
0: Oh Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I love uh, you talk about uh, list your top five weird actors, Eric, and yours are Tilda Swindon, Benicio del Toro, Forrest Whitaker, Uma Thurman, and Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, Twin Peaks, the return shout out for that one. So I wrote some of my own and so did Vance. Mine are Peter Sellers, Jeffrey Rush, Naomi Watts, Christopher Walken, and Malcolm McDowell. So nice. those are good. What about you, Vince? Did you write your list?
3: Oh yeah. I got 13 of them, but uh, you want me to pick out five or read sure. them quick? Uh, just Read them quick. All right. David Lynch, Jack Nance, Pee Wee Herman, Johnny Depp, Marty Feldman, Peter Sellers, Brad Pitt, Nicholas Cage, you ever see his face and face off? I can't believe how many faces that guy has.
0: Uh, nobody's doubting Nicolas Cage's
3: weirdness. Well, that's one act. His, you know, his so. Credentials
1: are stellar for the weird acting. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh yeah, Tilda Swinton, Jack Nicholson, Tony Collette. She's kind of my mm. eye worm.
1: Whenever yeah. I see that woman on the yeah. screen, I don't know.
3: Brilliant actor. Weird, you know. And uh, Steve Buscemi.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Those are all fantastic. Um, I, I love that you mentioned Jack Nance. So of course it's kind of the err. Ur- strange actor um the eraser head actor oh um, yeah so so good and peter sellers and, and marty marty feldman those are those are really great those are good sort of 70s strange actors i mean we're generation Xers, but marty feldman was a. I don't know i think he was in um young frankenstein um yep. the gene wilder film Iger, yeah. Mel Brooks and playing the igor character right just, walk like this <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly so good
3: yeah
0: have wow. you had a chance to watch uh, Mandy or Color Out of Space, Eric?
1: With, uh, I, I've I've not. I uh, you have to watch too. both of them. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah.
0: as a Gen <laughs> Xer, you'll just love it. And they actually did a good job with Lovecraft. For once, we got okay. a good Lovecraft movie.
1: So. Good, good
0: that's good to see uh, yeah yeah uh, the other thing too is your some of the exercises you have is uh yeah 28 fabricate a story that has never existed before 29 review books books that do not exist and of course, you're uh, you're channeling your inner Jorge Luis Borges, a fellow Gnostic mm-hmm, that we love. Who, mm-hmm. I forgot what story it is where there's this library that has every book that's never been written. And he talks about like the footnotes of Basilides' gospel books that you would never think. I, I
1: think that's the library of Babel. And then there's that's the a, other story, Tuan Uqbar and Orbius Tertius, where he talks about this world that was written about in a history. And then it came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and so, yeah, the, the, that exercise, those two exercises um, were definitely written in, in that in that spirit. Um, I have some exercises that have to do with kind of generating random experiences. Like one, as I say, go go to the library and go to your favorite shelf and just close your eyes and like pull this, pull a book off the shelf and open it. And the first sentence you notice, write that as the first sentence and then write a story you know, based on that sentence, one page story, and then put that story in the book and leave it there. Thinking someone might find it, <laughs> find it later on. Oh, wow! That sort of thing.
3: Yeah. If my yeah. luck, uh, I pull one. It would say, "It is a dark and story be night." <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Edward Layton Bol- Bolton. Yeah, he wrote that too, but uh, <clears throat> considered the worst line in history. But he also wrote one of the greatest lines: "The pen is mightier than, than, than the, the sword. sword." So, nice. as writers, we have ups and downs. Ups and
1: downs. That's right. <laughs>
0: that history will remember. So uh, yeah, you, there's a number 30 where you talk about uh, imagine your life as a peculiar novel written by a lazy God. So of course I'm like, aha, there's the Demiurge
1: right <laughs> there's there. There's the Demiurge. Yeah. And what would you say? What would you say to this God? Like you suddenly realized, like, dude, you wrote me a, wrote me a really terrible story. And then, and then what kind of conversation would you have with this lazy God? Um, so a lot of little mental exercises show up and show up in, in the book too, like that.
0: Yeah, and um, there is uh, another which you we've talked about in the past, and you bring up again, and that's the idea of the the Dadaists or the Absurdists. Could you maybe share the audience quickly because I, their work I always I still lean on it.
1: Yeah, so the so the Dadaists were kind of artistic collective that came about between the two world wars in the early part of the 20th century, um, and they basically concluded that reason, which had been sort of the crowning achievement of Western thought because it was responsible for the horrific World War I and was about to be responsible for World War II, that the best way to rebel against the warlike spirit was to do that, which was the exact opposite of reason. But in their case, not the irrational, which would just be the reversal of reason, but the irrational. Like any, anything can go. <laughs> so they would come up with all these sorts of games to, to generate absurdist experience. And the, the famous one um, is called The Exquisite Corpse where you would get get words in a hat and you would kind of each person would draw a word and then each person would be assigned a part of speech for a sentence like you're the noun you're the verb you're the adverb you're the adjective so on and so forth and then the words would be strung together in a random way and a sentence would would come out i think this one of the most famous ones is like the exquisite corpse will have wine for lunch or something like that so there, there are all kinds of of games that and William Burroughs practiced some of these games, too, by the way, the, the beat writer in, in the 50s, um, th- he would take pages from his novels and then throw them on the floor and mix them up and then put them back together again. And, and that would be the novel. The idea that life is already random anyway. Uh, so to sort of inject your art with randomness, yes, it can make it surprising and compelling, but also it's just sort of an accurate way of reflecting what what human experience is, is, is really like. So the Dadaists were hugely influential on this book. And, of course, the Dadaists were influential on someone like Salvador Dali. There's, there's a fine line. I mean, Dadaism merges into surrealism pretty quickly I'm with people like Andre Breton and, and Salvador Dali.
0: Yeah, you know. definitely. Uh, advise people to follow the work. Vance, any question
3: from you or the audience? Um, I don't see questions in the audience yet unless I missed them. But, uh, yeah, I was wondering if, Erica, if you could talk about the etymology of the word weird. I think it's extremely relevant.
1: Gladly. <laughs> that, that was in the book at one point, And my publisher said, I think that's a little too pedantic. Um, no. but, but, but weird is an old old English word, W-Y-R-D. Um, and, it, and it shows up in old English poetry, of like, say, Beowulf. It means fate, roughly. Um, The idea that there's some sort of principle in the universe determining action. But the word actually, by the time we get to the early modern period or the Renaissance period and with Shakespeare and Macbeth, it's taken on other meanings to the point where the witches in Macbeth are called the weird sisters, meaning that they are in touch with fate, uh, but also they're in touch with the occult and and the strange. And and, and so that's how the word kind of came to take on the meaning it does for us today um you may have a, a some some more information on that it looks like you were um just a
3: little bit which
1: is yeah. uh to transcend fate to uh-huh.
3: rise above fate see which yeah. is why people do magic right that was yeah. a big theme yeah. way back when
1: yeah That's... so
3: yeah so to be weird you could transcend fate and uh fate being being mechanical being going with the flow and not mm-hmm. having any will of your own so forth
1: I I love that part. Part of the definition, and I actually play around a little bit with some uh, occult activities in in my book as well. I I, um, give a little history of the tarot deck and suggest that people make their own tarot deck and and see what happens there. I I suggest people draw um, a magic circle, such as people who practice Wiccan might do. Not not in a sort of heavy way, but like you know, you can use. Couch cushions, but the idea of like creating a kind of (laughs) sacred space for yourself just for like 10 minutes and and see what see what that's about. Um, I say create a divining rod. (laughs) See, see, (laughs) see, 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 walk around with that. Those forks and see if you can get some vibrations, those sorts of things. Again, I'm not taking them too seriously as metaphysical actions, but I do think to sort of dabble in the idea that there are forces beyond our rational control. Um, and m- maybe they are metaphysical, maybe they are spiritual. We don't know, but I think those are those to think about those things are just other ways to open us up, uh, to, to something different than we might normally think about in our daily lives.
3: Yeah. I call fan wants to know, uh, uh, what you think of the weirdness of the blood of someone say who was hung in Salem. Hmm. <laughs> i don't understand yeah that's heavy <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well, i think it's like a, 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 in other words if you inherited if you were a descendant of someone maybe yeah. and you had blood or something it's oh yeah it's weird
1: that's a very Hawth- Hawthornian Haw- nathaniel hawthorne like question i'm ah. thinking of house <laughs> of the seven Gables, which is all about a curse okay the the the, the, the curse of salem um witches yeah so I, I i think that weirdness can take on all all, all kinds of of forms. I mean, one would be a, a more traditionally gothic weirdness, which would have to do with sort of the occult and darkness and trauma right, yeah. and melancholy and all that sort of thing. And and those are legitimately weird experiences. Ab- absolutely. And I think to brood on the gothic can, can also ultimately, strangely enough, be a healthy thing to do. Um, because I think I mean, America, and you've now talked about this, Miguel, I mean, there's something kind of very antiseptically anti-Gothic about mainstream America, um, Mm -hmm. always has been, all the way way back to the Southern Witch Trials. So to to cultivate kind of a Gothic spirit and be open to uncanniness, and again, deja vu, hypnagogia, um, seeing the same number several times in one day, getting lost, coming back to the same place, those are experiences that we would categorize as Gothic and, um, the more we can cultivate those, I think the better
0: certainly, certainly, I would agree too. another mm-hmm. section you talk about Eric and uh sacr in your section forty two in the answer to the universe i know forty two uh <laughs> is sacralize the absurd, and you talk about memento mori, which is very popular today about yeah. think about death and so forth, and you and i think uh Exercises fifty one, fifty two. you talk about write an obituary and rub a tombstone. So that is important, realizing that time is short. We are finite mm-hmm. beings. So that is the biggest changer of our perspective mm-hmm. and worldview, knowing we're going to die. There's an exercise I do, Eric, and I've shared mm-hmm. it from a Sufi master. He says, uh, when you wake up in the morning, say, today I'm going to die. There is no mm-hmm. God but Allah. If you know you're gonna die today, you're gonna live a completely different
1: day. Yeah, yeah. No, that's y- there is a wisdom to keeping the skull on the desk that, that uh, scholars and monks did did for centuries. Um, well, in, in that exercise where I say sacralize the absurd, I kind of poke a tiny bit of fun at that Mori, mainly because you see the skulls everywhere now, right? You yeah, see them on handbags and scarves and tattoos and
0: stoicism's uh, very hip with uh, it is it's very millennials. It's, <laughs> Very hip,
1: and which is fine. I, lo- I love, I love skulls. I love skulls. But what, and so that exercise, Sacralize the Absurd, actually grows out of one of my favorite passages in, in Moby Dick, where Ishmael, the narrator of that novel, is left out on a, on a tiny whaling ship all night long, thinking he's been left by the by the main vessel, the Pequod. Um, and he just gives himself up from debt for dead. But then he's res- rescued the next morning. And he says to one of his friends, Queequeg, a harpooner, he says, gosh, is it always like this wailing? And he's like, yeah, man, every day. <laughs> and so Ishmael says, OK, I realize that um, if there is a God, he's a practical joker. And um, you know what? When you're the butt of a joke, you can get mad at the joker or you can just go along with it and laugh at it. So this idea of like sacralize the absurd, I give the example of. So you're walking to the bathroom one night and your, your daughter has left a marble on the floor. And you step on that marble and and you like trip and you bang into the bookshelf and like this this precious vase you got in China falls on the floor. Like instead of being angry at that, make a shrine of the marble <laughs> and, like, and just use it as a way to remind you, don't take things so seriously. Um, so it's kind of a it is a kind of anti-momento more in that way. Um, just. Yeah. It, world's absurd, go with it,
0: <laughs> yeah. Or oh, the Lego yeah. instead of the Marvel,
1: and oh, all the Legos are the so worst, <laughs> <They're so laughs> worst. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah.
0: And uh, M- Moby Dick, as we've discussed, the great American novel mm-hmm. is ironically the great Gnostic gospel. I always think it's funny, it yeah. I always think it's funny. England's poet is a, is a Gnostic, it's almost like the Gnostics kind of slid it in, or what's yeah. the other one, yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> It's ironic how they got away, but you write uh, Herman Melville. He had to change his worldview and perspective just to write Moby Dick, right? He had well, to, be he, he, <laughs> he he was, to be weird.
1: He had to be weird. Well, he, he had to be weird. And, and what what happened with? I mean, Melville was writing really popular adventure novels early on. He he wrote a novel called Type e about his time among this this tribe in, 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 in the Pacific Ocean. And it was kind of a, a, a romantic, exotic travelogue. It was a bestseller. And, and then he read a couple other books that we would just qualify as sort of sea adventure novels. But then he met Hawthorne. And Hawthorne had written Scarlet Letter, House of the Seven Gables, and Hawthorne blew his mind. And then he started reading Shakespeare and Plato. And he read about the Gnostic in this famous 18th century um, reference work, Bale's Encyclopedia which had entries on all the major Gnostics. Of course, in Melville's time, that information would have come from the, the theologians who were anti-heretical, you know, people um, along those lines. And in or- Origin, for instance. So right. so it's, it's, it's like Melville opened up to this kind of Hawthornean Gothic sensibility. And Moby Dick started out as another adventure tale with Ishmael kind of on this happy-go-lucky whaling cruise. But then, like, 120 pages in, Melville had already written that part. He met Hawthorne and then he put Ahab in there. So, <laughs> so, and, 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 and so instead of like rewriting the first 120 pages, he just left them the same. So it's almost like you can see these two novels pushing against each other, the sort of dark Gnostic Ahabian vision and this more sort of playful, ironic Ishmaelian vision. It's really, really fascinating.
0: Yeah, Nathaniel mm-hmm. Hawthorne was just basically history's first hippie. I mean, he was, you always think of this like, you know, smart intellectual, but he lived in a commune and he was part of the Boston Liberals, you know, the first wave of liberalism. Really?
1: Huh, weird. Yeah. yeah you well, always, he did live in Brook Farm um, Commune for a year. Um, ac- actually, it's interesting as you bring that up, Miguel. I mean, Hawthorne lived in this hippie dippy commune, um, Brook Farm. But he did it so he could raise enough money to marry um, the woman he wanted to marry, Sophia Peabody. So he's there for purely financial reasons. Uh, And then he bailed on it. And, I mean, Hawthorne was educated at Bowdoin College. We went to college with Franklin Pierce there, who became president. So his politics were a little weird. I mean, he was friends with Emerson (laughs) and Thoreau, who were very liberal. But Hawthorne himself, you know, on the slavery question, on the women question, um, kind Uh, of not 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 so palatable um but 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 that that complexity of his soul is i think part of what makes him different from someone like emerson or thoreau because he's willing to go in kind of the dark spaces of the psyche um where you know thoreau and emerson they're not really interested in that
0: people are complex (laughs) and that's the the beauty and certainly the beauty of being weird uh there is a part where you have some great uh, write your own aphorisms, and I wanted to share some with the audience. I'm like, oh, he's got doing a great job uh, tapping into the inner Emil Cioran or Woody mm-hmm. Allen or somebody mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Here's a couple for the audience. I'll read them. Live this day as if it's your last, and you will run around screaming, "I'm going to fucking die!" <laughs> like, yeah, so well, much for memento uh, mori. Uh, the Sufi I, I, prayer. When
1: you, when you were telling telling me about the Sufi yeah. uh, morning adhan, I was thinking about that. Yeah
2: yeah it's
0: like yeah and Hannah and her sisters when Woody Allen is freaking out about death and he goes into the movie theater well he tries to commit suicide and like Philip K Philip K Dick had we were so sweaty the gun he shot the gun and he goes in and sees a a Marx Brothers movie and he he realizes what you're talking about in your book take it easy life is short just have fun
1: yeah that's that's it that's a great moment um I'm glad you Emil see on. I mean, I haven't talked. I mean, his short history of decay, by the way, is just a major book for me. And, I mean, and he captures exactly. I mean, there's something very acerbic about his writing, but there's a wit to it as well. I just really I'm glad you brought him up a great aphoristic writer.
0: Yeah, yeah. We actually we did a show about a month ago. And yeah. our guest, of course, of course, it's no secret. He wrote about the demiurge and the Gnostics. Mm-hmm. He he tapped into their energy like Blake and mm-hmm. all these other guys. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when it comes to aphorisms, I think he gives Oscar Wilde a run for his money, if you know what yes. I mean. Yes. Here's a couple of other good ones. <laughs> Never go to bed angry. Drunk is much better. <laughs> Failure isn't final. It's also at the beginning and in the middle.
1: So. <laughs> oh, man, I, I I worked on those three. Those are the only three that I wrote. You know, I, yeah. I give examples from Wild and others that I worked so hard on those. And um, I, I'd read like drafts to my daughter. She goes, that is so not funny, Dad. I kept working <laughs> and working and working. Some I'm, I'm really proud of the three I came up with. And I had my students do this exercise in class the other day. And they came up with some pretty good stuff. I mean, it's kind of interesting if you just write a cliche. And then think about well, how can I like riff on that cliche? That's kind of how it works, and, it, and it's interesting. It was interesting for my students to do that for fun, but also just to kind of problematize a cliche. So, no, it
0: makes sense. And with your yeah. students, Eric's just sort of picking your brain there's mm-hmm. sort of two attitudes and i'm sure both work there's mm-hmm. sort of the neil gaiman i oh, just make up stories as i go and mm-hmm. this is me pretending and then there's of course the more alan moore jr token mm-hmm. carl jung we like no you know we go into the imaginal of henry corban and these mm-hmm. stories are there mm-hmm. waiting for us the worlds are there mm-hmm. and it, we just have to access the soul and our stories what do you tell your students when of course, writer's block, or what do I write next, professor?
1: <laughs> that, I, I, lo- I love that question. I would say until about five years ago, I was very much in the Alan Moore camp. Um, the idea that there are these kind of archetypes, mythological archetypes out there, and they're rich, and you can mine them, and you can endlessly translate them into your own narratives. And, and you can still do that. I'm not saying I discount that. But my, as my own writing has become, I guess, looser and more playful, I've tended to be more in the, in the gaming camp. Just, just play around with your own thoughts and your own weirdness and your own idiosyncrasies and, and, and see what happens. Of course, oftentimes the two worlds will collide anyway. <laughs> you, you go deep into the myth. You'll come out on the other side as more yourself. You go deep into mm-hmm. yourself. You come on the other side into the myth it often happens.
0: Yeah. Or again, a little bit of both. And mm-hmm. yeah, I know F. Scott Fitzgerald said, uh, to find your vo- voice takes a million words. I, I, that was chilling, but it's true, right? You got yeah. to just tell them, keep writing. Your voice will come. That's the best news when you find out your voice because you're kind of finding out your soul. Who you There's are.
1: nothing like it as a writer. And I, I didn't find my voice as a writer, I don't think, until I was about 45 or 50 even. I mean, because I was trained as an academic. And, and that means you're writing, yeah, academic prose, which... You're not really encouraged to be creative and you kind of learn a jargon. And it's almost like writing a sonnet at a certain point. You can sort of do it endlessly. And and when I started to write um, creatively with books like Against Happiness and Everyone Loves a Good Trainwreck, even with those books, I feel like there was a kind of heavy scholarly voice. Um, But I think in the last five years, really, I've I've kind of I kind of like I like writing more because I write like I think inside my head now. Um, in a very sort of relaxed way. And I care less about word choice and more about like syntax and rhythm now. Um, and that just, it just, it feels amazing um, to find that, but I'm 50, 55 now. And I tell my students that like, Oh God, it takes that long. I said, no, 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 you, you can get a head start. Don't you can, you can start trying now. And I didn't really start trying until my forties to, to create my own literary voice
0: yeah it's uh it's like that saying uh god who wrote uh, even cowgirls get the blues what's his name tom Tom robbins
1: Robbins. tom robbins yeah yeah
0: yeah one of my favorite quotes it's it's never too late to have a happy childhood so So you can meet. access that child and yeah. being that was so close to the undivided unconscious. And I love that. that. It's, yeah. it's all there for the taking. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Vance, uh, any questions from the audience? I think I saw a few. Or yeah, Graham, uh,
3: Graham Pong, our buddy, um, wanted to know uh, your thoughts, Eric, on uh, Alfred Jari, father of met- pataphysics. Oh, yeah, Alfred of Jari, um, the, the
1: pat- guy. Pat- pataphysics guy. Um, yeah. I I spent... Let me th- let me let me think about this. Um, in my book, keep it fake. Um, I I had a whole section on Jari because I mean the the idea of 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 his use of performance, like riding the bicycle around, and there was just something so kind of he was like an early Charlie Chaplin, an early Buster Keaton, so, someone who who saw living as art and just sort of behaving in these ridiculous, absurd ways. So I, I don't know his his work deeply, but he was an inspiration for me at that time. And definitely, even though he doesn't appear in this book, he that pataphysical vibe is, is in here for sure. What okay. is
0: pataphysical?
1: Well, pataphysics is it's not metaphysics. It's like it's, like, um, it's not physics. It's kind of it's, it's almost like a way of saying the world is absurd. The world mm-hmm. is Dadaistic. The world is surreal. And pataphysics is a kind of science, not of the real, but of the surreal. It's kind of how I've taken it. It shows up in the Beatles song, Maxwell's S- Silver Hammer, right? Um, studied pataphysical. No, 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 no. Oh, so what they yeah. were saying? It's pataphysical, I think. Oh, I think. okay. <laughs> always, check, always check behind me, but I think so, yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. I'm, I'm glad to think about Jerry for a second, yeah.
3: Cool. Yeah, I'll call fan, wanted uh, <laughs> me
1: to mention Infinite Jest to you. Oh, huge, huge David Foster Wallace fan. Massive. Um, Infinite Jest is one of the most important books I've ever read and I've got a couple of things to say about David Foster Wallace. One is, he, and this is probably true of a lot of writers, his voice was so powerful that it influenced me so profoundly that for about three years I tried to write like David Foster Wallace. And it was miserable failure because no one can write like no, that. No. I mean, I wrote a whole book. I think it was the "Keep It Fake" book. I sent it to my publisher, and she goes, "This sounds like you're trying to write like David Foster Wallace. This is unpublishable." It's like what? So I you to rewrite the whole thing. And, and that's kind of when I discovered my, my own voice. So, but David Foster Wallace, I mean, his he's such he's such a compelling figure in, in, in this in this in relation to my subject matter because he valued irony immensely. Um, both as a writer of fiction and as a writer of nonfiction. But also he feared irony. He was afraid that our, our culture had become so ironic to where we couldn't really value anything anymore. We just kind of mocked everything. So he wanted to find a way to sort of, well, in his famous lecture, This Is Water, he said, say you're standing in line at the grocery store and you're being annoyed immensely by this woman and her three kids. They're just like, She's like flustered. She, she can't check out because she's getting all her change out. She's holding you up. The kids are screaming. They're pulling magazines down. And he said, you could be really angry at that point or you could imagine that her husband has cancer and she spent all night caring for him. And, and in other words, create a narrative. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. And that's the irony. Creating a narrative that is fictional, but then treating it as if it's not not fictional, treating it as if it's real. And that leads to a kind of ethical sensibility, that's very powerful. And I feel like one reason Wallace couldn't finish his last novel, *The Pale King*, which was mostly finished when he committed suicide, because it, I feel like almost it's almost like he got too paralyzed by the idea that I can't escape irony. It's like he wanted. So the novel's about accountants, and they sit all day and do tax returns. <laughs> And Wallace's idea was, if you can do tax returns all day and still find value in life, then you've mastered everything. <laughs> <laughs> but the novel didn't go anywhere. It's, it's like it, he, it, he became like too caught up in the idea of trying to represent the banality of reality, and then he couldn't write a novel anymore. Anyway, I, I, I could go on and on about David Foster Wallace. Huge, huge hero for me in, in, every, in every way. Yeah. 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 So, yeah
3: i was wondering uh, um about um you know weird music that, um i'm gonna guess eric that you like they might be giants,
1: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um i mean the 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 famous Istanbul constantinople i i i still love, but they actually did a, a, a an album of children's songs um that i would play for my daughter, kind of songs about counting and learning, amazing now, they're great are they still around are they still making music i don't know yeah
3: yeah they're on facebook and they're doing this and that i don't know if they're you know that popular anymore but they're around yeah
1: yeah Yeah. a gen x band for sure Um,
3: yeah yeah. definitely
0: (laughs) that's for sure and uh yeah as we're getting to the top of the hour and the end of the interview uh i know in uh one of my favorite books in our first interview i owned all of your books they're in my shelves the, Eric. Friend, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but gnostic cinema or sorry yeah. secret cinema gnostic vision and film is still one of my favorite books because you not just break down you know people who are oh gnostic themes not you break down the different types valentin you know chemical yeah, yeah. and in our interview in 2018 we both had like a, a a, a huge kind of bro sigh of relief because uh, twin peaks the return not only did disappoint it really was even better than yes. everything that lynch has gone but since then have you uh watched any good gnostic movies or novels or mm-hmm. anything because there's a lot of it now now that the mm-hmm. multiverse and mm-hmm. simulation mm-hmm. is so popular mm-hmm. in fiction so it's almost mm-hmm. like an embarrassment of riches or yeah. diluted, yeah. but Yeah, I can't really think of anything except maybe the TV series Legion, but that was
1: 2017. Yeah, I'm drawing a bit of a blank on that. I mean, I I feel like the late 90s, early aughts was just the sort of golden age for Gnosticism and popular culture. I mean, not only with the film I write about, but also with the Alan Moore comics. And of course, they're being made into films um, quite frequently now. And even, even with uh, films like um, Adaptation, uh, it, it, just this idea that the world is – or Vanilla Sky, the idea that this mm-hmm. world is, is, is fictional. But I, I, I guess I guess because I'm not thinking about Gnosticism in that formalized way like I was when we had those conversations, probably a lot's just done on my radar. And, right,
3: right.
1: Yeah. Mother,
3: uh, that's – it's
1: already no, five years course. old.
3: But-
0: yeah, Darren Aronofsky's mother. Yeah, straight out of the Kabbalah. Uh,
1: yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah, yeah, i'm he, out, of, I mean, out of the loop yeah you oh, really you are, are out of, i'm out of the loop it. i'm a, i'm a, i'm am a backsliding gnostic i got i gotta got, <laughs> got get my faith back in order yeah talk but about that weird is that, that is a weird movie. movie i That's love Aronofsky. okay good thank you I'll, I'll i'll give that a look for sure yeah
4: yeah
0: for sure for sure well, awesome. Yeah. And uh, any other last exercise you want to share? Like I told the audience, there's uh, 99 of them. Some are <laughs> short, some are long. You'll find something that you'll really enjoy. I think you have one, for example, William Blake, carry a door, a portable door, doors of perception.
1: That's exactly oh, what I was going to mention. Yeah, oh, well, there
0: you go. Let's but, end with that synchronicity one.
1: Synchronicity <laughs> there, Miguel. Yeah. I mean, you know, Blake famously said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, the world will appear as it is, infinite. So, so I say I get an index card and and, and draw a, a, a doorknob on it and carry it around with you. And when you're feeling bored, you know, stick it on a wall and just imagine like what's behind the door. And um, again, it's just a way of you know, pulling yourself out of, out of the ordinary. But, but, but that's ultimately the, 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 the spirit of the book is the world's a lot bigger and stranger than most of us give it credit for. And most of us, Fear the bigness and the strangest, and I'm guilty of that too. So, I would say the book is in some ways a self help book. It's kind of a tongue in cheek, um, ironic self help book, but ultimately it's meant to help you live a happier life, and and hopefully have it, it has a therapeutic value. And I'm a man who needs therapeutic um, value in my life, having you know suffering bipolar disorder, as I know you, yeah. too, Miguel. So um, yeah, if you check out the book, hopefully it'll be fun for you, and hopefully it just make you feel a little better of a day.
0: Yeah. oh it will you guys will laugh i laughed you'll mm-hmm. laugh even more we just scratched the surface so mm-hmm. yes and i have here uh your website is eric for those this it will be in the show notes uh your book is available everywhere
1: everywhere also in audio form for the first time Oh excited okay. about that yeah
0: did you narrate it
1: I think. no a, a, a penguin my publisher had hired, hired an actress that's okay. a woman reading she reads it beautifully
0: um, that's ah, that's see i I was just thinking he's got to have a woman do oh it had to be just, again twisted yeah. turn it, <laughs> it around perfect yeah. Yeah. perfect, well, awesome. well, the audience, you guys had some good comments, good questions. Mm-hmm. I had a few questions that was brought separately, but Eric addressed them as we were talking mm-hmm. about all these different things, so yeah, thank you uh for housekeeping. We'll have another couple a b lives next week. Uh, with some very cool topics on who is God, the archons and astrology, then a show on hermetic healing, both the psychic and the mind. So a lot of good, useful stuff for you guys to get ready for the holidays. This book will help you with the holidays as (laughs) things get really intense with the ego. So thanks for everybody's support and being here. And, Vance, thank you for being here.
3: Oh, it's fun. Great to be with you, Eric. And, of course, always great to be with you, Miguel. Thanks. And our wonderful viewers.
0: Yeah, yeah, good, good, smart guys, smarter than us. Sometimes I think the audience <laughs> far smarter than us, which is a great thing. There is <laughs> so Eric as always. It's great having you on the show, and uh as always, so uh, I hope we talk sooner rather than later. And for everyone, as I say, uh, well, thank you, Eric.
1: You're welcome to go on a speech. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, as I, was, as I always say, everybody have a good weekend. And yeah, write your own gospel, live your own myth. And uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, everybody.